0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We are a Bible-based church out of Peterborough, Canada, and together we're on a mission to reach people who are far from Christ and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. Throughout the pages of the Bible, God has chosen to reveal himself through a series of names that disclose his eternal character and purpose. This week, we learn about how God revealed himself to Abraham as the provider. As we celebrate communion together this week, we will see Christ's sacrifice for what is God's final and permanent provision for us. With that, let's turn it over to Pastor Nathan and part two of his message series, The Names of God.
1: Awesome. Good morning, everybody. Anybody enjoy that extra hour of sleep? I know I did. I got up this morning feeling extra refreshed. I was sitting down in my living room and I'm looking over my sermon and I looked at the clock and I thought, "Ah, service starts in 30 minutes and it wasn't, which was amazing. Um, Got that extra sleep feeling good. So today we're in week two of a message series called The Names of God and if you weren't here last week, I really encourage you. Uh, to go back, you can go to our website, you can go to our YouTube channel, and you can watch that message. And in that, really explained a lot about the history of the name of God, the Hebrew word. There's lots of information that I think will really help you as you seek to understand more about God and His and His names. Our, our theme verse for this four-week series is uh, is found in in Psalm Psalm 34 verse three, and it says this: It says, "O magnify the Lord with me; let us exalt His name." Together. There are so many passages in the Bible that talk about the name of the Lord. And what we've been saying is that we want to, through this series, we want to magnify. We want to, we want to make big his name, okay? We want to make it bigger. When you magnify something, you make it large so you can learn more about it, right? And, and so what we want to do is we want to exalt his name and magnify his name. So we're learning about uh, some of the names of God. Uh, I showed a list last week, which I won't do again. Um, there are a whole bunch of names. You saw a bunch of them in that video we just played. All those are different names that God is called throughout the Scripture. We said this last week, we gave a definition for the word name, and uh, name can be defined in this way. I'll throw it up there. Name, a word or words that a particular person, animal, place, or thing is known by. A name is a word that allows you to associate something with someone. And you can say, oh, that's Joe, that's Mary, that's Sally, that's this person. And when you say the name, it identifies someone in particular. And so as we learn about the names of God, what we're actually doing is we're identifying who God is as distinct amongst all the other gods. Because there's all kinds of gods out there that people worship, and they all have different names. But God also has a name, and actually God has many names, and God has many titles. And so there are all these names that God gives himself, and each one of them reveals something different about his character. But then there's all these titles, he's called Lord, he's called Master, he's called Rock, he's called Shelter, he's called Fortress, he's, he's, uh, he's called all kinds of things, and each one of them has something to teach us about God. So, before we dive into the name that we're going to be looking at today, let me recap just one thing from last week, that there are three primary names, or you could say titles even, for God in the Old Testament. The first is the Hebrew word Elohim, And if you want to learn more about these words, you can watch last week's message. It's used 2,500 times, and it's literally the Hebrew word that would be comparable to our word God. So it's very generic. can refer to the God of the Bible or some other God. And then there's the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. And so when people talked about the Lord in the Old Testament, they said Adonai, Lord or Master. And then the last was this. I'm not going to explain all this today. But these four letters are the Hebrew personal name of God that he gives to Moses and his people. And they translated, because they're Hebrew letters, translated into English. It's either YHWH or JHVH. You will have heard them pronounced either as Yahweh or Jehovah. And I'm going to use those words somewhat interchangeably today. They're both the personal name of God, which means I am. And so the specific name we're going to look at today is on the next slide. And it is this, Jehovah Jireh. Or you could say Yahweh Jireh. Same thing, okay? So this is God saying, I am Jira. You say, well, what does Jireh mean? We're going to find out today as we look at our text. So we're going to turn to Genesis 22. And in this passage, we're going to read together a story in which God reveals himself as Jehovah Jireh. And this story is so critical to understanding all of the Bible. It ties into All that Jesus would do, all of God's promises, all of it is woven together with this ancient story. So there's a lot of ground to cover this morning. So we're going to turn to Genesis 22, and we're going to begin with the first three words. Okay, that's about all we can handle right now. It says, after these things, the chapter opens up in this way. And this whole chapter is about Abraham and his son Isaac. And it says, after these things, because... What Abraham is about to experience in this moment we're reading about is tied to his history and knowledge of God in the past. Did you know that what you're experiencing today and how you view God and what you learn about him today is deeply connected to what has happened in the past? You know that, right? What has happened in the past shapes your knowledge of God and what you believe. And so Abraham, to give to shorten many, many chapters, Abraham is called by God at an old age. He's in his 70s. And God says, will you leave your family? Abraham says, yes. Will you leave your homeland, your relatives? Yes. Will you follow me to a land that I'll show you? I'm not even going to tell you where it is. Abraham says, yes. And he leaves with his wife and his servants, and he begins to travel around the land of Canaan. And God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you this land that you're walking around looking at. I'm going to give this to you and your descendants. I'm going to give you descendants. And Abraham and his wife did not have any kids. And I'm also going to bless the whole world through you. It's pretty significant. Three significant promises. And so Abraham's basically following God around this land for the next 25 or more years. And none of what God has promised has actually transpired. In fact, the one thing that everything else hinged upon was Abraham and his wife having a child. And they were already old to begin with, and she wasn't able to get pregnant. And so there's a whole story around that. But essentially what happens is this. Uh, God waits... 25 years to give them a child. He actually waits until Sarah has well past menopause. She's like, I'm not able anymore. This is physically impossible. Abraham's now a really old man, and she gets pregnant, which is a miracle. So God gives them a miracle child. So for the first time in 25 years, everything God promised to Abraham actually looks like it might happen. Do you understand the tension of that? And that's where we land in this story. They've waited, they've waited, they've waited. Finally, they have a son. They name him Isaac. His name means laughter. Because they were just like, this is ridiculous. We're like 100 years old and we got a baby, you know? Everyone's like, who's your grandparents? Isaac's like, that's my mom and dad. Super amazing. This is amazing. Miracle child. So they're just thrilled. Like everything's up into the right. God's doing finally what he said he would do. And it says, after these things, here's what it says next. God tested Abraham. So when everything seems like it's going the right way, Things are going to get shaken up. God is going to test Abraham, and it says to him, Abraham, and he says, here I am. So Abraham hears the voice of God. He says, yes, and here's what God asks Abraham to do. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, (laughs) whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, which is some distance away. Okay, got that. And here's what he says to do. Offer your son there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains to which I shall tell you. So God's like, hey, you know that son that you finally got that I gave you? Yeah. You know how much you love him? Yeah. I want you to take him to this place, and I want you to kill him and burn his body as a sacrifice to me. Now, if you most of you have heard this story, but if you haven't, they should create a tension in you that goes, what kind of God? What kind of God? This is the question we should be asking. What kind of God would demand such a thing? Who is this God that would demand when I was in Bible college, I remember reading this story and I thought, ooh, and I was trying to figure out all this stuff and looking at the Hebrew words and diving in. I thought it was interesting. Now as a father with four kids, I just go, really? How could God ask for something? What kind of God would demand such a thing? And the honest answer to this question for Abraham would be most of them. Now I need to give you a little bit of history and context, you see. Abraham and the people of the ancient world in the Middle East knew that the gods demanded, the gods demanded sacrifice. This, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but god's, the gods demanded sacrifice. And Abraham's living in the land of Canaan, okay? And so to understand the concept of child sacrifice, okay, child sacrifice on the next slide, um, you have to understand two things, culture and chronology. Let me explain this quick. The Bible's very clear. 500 years later, God would write to Moses and he would warn him about child sacrifice. So at the time in Canaan, the way that people worship their gods often was to sacrifice a child. And it was like, hey, if there's no rain, our crops are going to die, our whole family is going to die. But if we sacrifice one of our kids, maybe the one we don't like so much, uh, if we sacrifice this one, maybe the gods will give us favor and bring rain. This was their thinking. And so it was very common in the land of Canaan for parents to sacrifice their children. Okay? Uh, so that was the culture. Secondly, the chronology, you might go, well, doesn't the Bible say we're not supposed to sacrifice humans and children? Isn't that against God's law? Yeah, but none of that was given to Abraham. In fact, it wouldn't be until 450 years later that God would reveal the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments and all those commandments to Moses. And here's what he writes in Deuteronomy chapter 12. So this is God speaking through Moses 500 years after Abraham. He says, you shall not worship Yahweh. Your God in that way. In what way? The way that the Canaanites worshipped. That's where Abraham's living right now. And he says, for every abominable thing that the Yahweh, the Lord, hates, they have done for their gods. And then he goes on to say what they did for their gods, for they even burned their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So God is saying to the nation of Israel, don't do what the Canaanites do and sacrifice your children. In another place, through one of the prophets, God actually says, if you burn your kids... To to me or any other God, I will take vengeance because you're killing my sons and daughters. God takes this very seriously. So you go, why would God, who commands that this shouldn't happen, ask Abraham to do this thing? That's a great question. And I think what it does is it actually sets us up. It sets us up to see how different God is from all the other gods at that time that the people worship. Okay? We're going to see that. We're going to see that towards the end. So as we said before, the gods demanded, the gods demanded sacrifice. So when Abraham hears this command of God, it probably was very difficult to think about, but it wasn't uncommon in the place where he lived. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men. I've underlined this word because I want to circle back to it later. This, the Hebrew word that's translated young men keeps getting used through this story. And it's actually really vital later on. So just take note of that. So he takes young men with him and his son Isaac. So Abraham, two servants, his son Isaac, donkey. Next it says, he goes out and he cuts wood for the burnt offerings. He's out there chopping wood, getting it all ready for the fire. And he rose and he went to the place. Now this is something else I want you to... Again, because I'm teaching this morning, I need you to kind of keep some little mental notes. Young men, place... These are terms that are going to keep turning up and they're all going to be relevant at the end. So make some mental notes. They're going to a specific place. Not just any place. A specific place in which God had told them. Now the next passage we're going to stop on for a little bit. It says this. It says, on the third day. So they've been traveling for three days. And I want us to consider what was going on inside of Abraham for three days. Consider this. God's asked him to sacrifice his one and only son that he loves. He agrees to do it. He's traveling for three days. And for three days, can you imagine what was going on inside of Abraham? Hey, Dad, why aren't you talking much? Got nothing to say. (laughs) Hey, Dad, you going to tell Mom about this trip? Probably not, son. (laughs) What was going through his mind? What was, was Abraham thinking about? Hey, God said that he would do all this great stuff through my son, so how could he ask me to kill him? And I didn't think God would ask something like this because he's different than the other gods. And what are my neighbors going to think? I've been telling them about this one true God that I worship and they're going to see me sacrifice my son and go, what did you do? He must have been wondering, like, what am I going to tell my wife, Sarah, when I come home? History tells us that Sarah actually died shortly after they returned home. They must have told her the story. (laughs) Can you imagine? So he's thinking about this. He's processing all of this. This is the test. This is the test. He's walking for three days, processing what he must do. I brought this this wheel. I almost forgot it. I had to run home and get it. I had a bicycle wheel here. And I guess you guys are all familiar with the wheel and how it works. But the outer rim of the wheel is connected with spokes. And they all connect to the hub, this metal hub in the center of the wheel. You see that? And the hub is the most significant part of the wheel because it has to be the strongest because all of the pressure and all of the strain and all of everything goes to the hub. That's the center of the wheel. Now, if that hub isn't in the center, it's going to be a bumpy ride, right? The wheel doesn't work. And if that hub is made out of soft plastic or rubber or nylon or something else, you're going to crash, okay? Because it won't be able to hold the weight. And so at the center of the wheel, you have this, this, this hub, and what's happening here is God is asking Abraham, am I the center of your life? This is the test. And God will still require this same test of you and me. He wants to know, am I, am I at the middle? Because there's a lot of things that you and I can make the center of our lives. You know this, right? I mean, you can make your career the center of your life. Uh, you can make a spouse, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. Like, oh, they're everything to me. Like, they're the middle and everything circles around them. Uh, for a lot of people, it, it, could, be, it could be their money and their stuff. For a lot of people like Abraham, it could actually be your children. And it's right that we love our children and we do anything for our children, even that we lay our lives down for our children. But our children are not supposed to be the center, the hub of our lives. Do you understand this? And Abraham, at some point, God had said, hey, will you leave your father? And he says, yes. And he makes God the center. Hey, will you leave your traditions? Yes. Will you leave your in-laws? Yes. Will you leave your land and your inheritance behind? Yes. And now he says, will you give me your son? Too far, God, too far. God wants to be the center. And He doesn't want to be the center of your life because He has low self esteem. Like if He's not the most important, He's going to have a, a fit. He knows, God knows, that if He's not the center, nothing else will work. If you place your child at the center of your life and make it your all, and you lose your child, what do you have left? If you make your child the center of your life and your child goes berserk and goes off the rails, what do you do? If you make your money the center of your life and you go bankrupt, what if, if your spouse is the center of your world and everything, every aspect of your life connects only to them and they're the center, can they bear that weight? And the answer is no. So God demands to be the center. And the test for each and every one of us is will we make him the center? You may say, well, how do I know what the center, what is the hub? What is the hub of my life? This is a good question. What is the hub of my life? How do you know? Well, there's a couple of hints. One way you can discover is follow the fear. What is the one thing that you're most afraid of losing? (laughs) Maybe you don't want to think about that. Everyone's getting depressed. Like, what? what is the one thing, person, or whatever, that if taken from you, your whole life would collapse like a deck of cards? Or here's another hint. What is the one thing that if you followed your money would lead you to your one master, the one thing that's most important to you? Because you can look at someone's finances and you can actually follow it to the things they love most. And so there's a couple quick tests to say, what is the hub of your life? God wants it to be him. And in this moment, he asks Abraham to do something that, I don't know, it just, it blows my mind. Um, And so we continue with that thought in mind in verse four. He goes on to say this on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place. So he's looking up a mountain and he sees a specific location. I don't know how God told him what it was, but he knew there's the place. And I want you to see, that's really important. The place, the place, and he sees it from afar. And then Abraham says to his young men, as they see it, he says, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there. Now, here's what I want you to know. See this term, young men, there it is again. It's the same Hebrew word as this, boy. But for whatever reason, when they translated it into English, the authors or the people translating it went, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Let's put the boy. So they they chose to put that word there for some reason. That's important. Again, keep that little mental note. It'll all come together. And we'll go over there and worship and come again to you. So two things about this passage. Number one, Abraham fully expects that him and his son are going to go worship God, and they're both going to return. And he also expects that he's going to sacrifice his son. You go, how does that make sense? Well, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament later would say that Abraham had so much faith in God that he believed he was going to kill his son, light him on fire, and God would bring his son back from the dead. Because God had already made promises that he would do all these things through his son. So he's just like, God, you're going to figure it out somehow. You have so much faith. He says, we're coming back. But they go up to worship. And I think it's appropriate for us to stop on this word. Because when you think of the word worship, what comes to mind? Anybody? Music, praise, singing. Yeah. So for us in our modern context, when we hear the word worship, we think, you know, I love you, Lord. Like we're thinking about people singing, maybe some sort of worshipful posture. For people a hundred years ago, when you said worship, they might have thought of lighting candles or going to mass or wearing certain clothes. So worship can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. But in this case, Abraham's act of worship was actually killing and burning his son. Sacrificing something that was most valuable to him was an act of worship. And you see, I like to define worship in this way, that worship is, I like to redefine it, worth, W-O-R-T-H, ship. Worth ship, raising something in value. When you raise something in value... That's worship, right? When you cheer on your hockey team, yeah, go, yeah, worship, okay, you're raising something's value and excellence in your eyes. And so in that way, worship can be defined like this, worship is any act that places God at the center. So whatever you do in your life that moves God from the periphery to the middle is an act of worship. For some people, for many of us, it might be giving money at church, it might be Bring bringing a meal to someone in need, but you're like, God, this is someone that's in need that you care about, and I want to do this as an act of worship to you, right? It can be serving kids. It can be sweeping floors. It can be singing songs, of course. It can be prayer and should be, but it's any act that places God at the center that says, God, you're most important in my life, and I'm going to do that for you and for your glory. That's worship. So we need to expand our definition of the word Worship. Here's what happens next. It says this. Again, another thing to just take note. It's all going to come together. Abraham took the wood. He's got all this firewood. What did he do with it? He laid it on Isaac, his son. So I want you to picture Abraham's son Isaac carrying all the wood up the mountain to the place of sacrifice. And then it says this. It says he took in his hand, Abraham did, the fire and the knife. He's got a little pan with some coals because they didn't have lighters. So he had the fire and he had the knife and they went, both of them together and this next moment as a dad breaks my heart because i can only imagine what this would have felt like Uh, isaac said to his father my father and he said here i am my son there's this moment and isaac says this he says behold the fire and the wood but where's the lamb for the burnt offering (laughs) say hey dad we've done this many times before we've sacrificed animals regularly to god and we've got everything we need except the animal where's the lamb where's the the sacrifice. See, Isaac understood something that ancient people understand and we forget. That sacrifice is necessary. In those days, they would sacrifice animals, which was their valuables, their possessions. And they would sacrifice animals to get, you know, blessing, to get forgiveness, to get things from God that they knew they needed. In our day, we, we sacrifice in a different way. We sacrifice time and money. When you go to work all week for somebody... You're sacrificing your time away from your family, away from the things you love. For what? For something in return. It's, it's an exchange. I give you this much time, you give me this much money. And you work out a, an arrangement. And so we understand that the, the scales always have to be balanced. And, and the ancient people were smart enough to understand that scales had to be balanced. If I did something wrong, something had to die. So we're going to kill this animal instead of me to balance the scales. And so this idea of sacrifice is this. That somebody has to pay. Isaac understood this. He's like, Dad, we're going to offer a sacrifice to God. We need to pay. The blood needs to be spilled. Where's the animal? Where's the animal? Someone always has to pay. You know this, right? Like nothing in life is free. You guys know this. It's Remembrance Day, so we should be keenly aware of the fact. Um, this past summer, we were at a camp with my family. We were family camping. And they had a youth program, and they were giving away free T-shirts. They got a picture of the kids came back. They're like, Dad, they gave us free shirts. Tyndale. And so every time we saw someone in a Tyndale shirt, we'd scream Tyndale. So here's our family photo. We're all wearing the Tyndale shirts, right? The kids were like, they're free. They're giving them away for free. And I thought to myself, nothing's free. Someone paid for those Tyndale shirts. Maybe someone here. I don't know. Maybe you donated to Tyndale. We, they gave out these shirts and they were free for us, but they cost somebody something. And you know, in the same way, we walk around on the streets of our city, not worried about being stabbed most of the time. And that was supposed to be funny because there are some places you don't want to go. But we have this incredible freedom in our country, right? Like we have the freedom to buy and we have the freedom to worship and we have the freedom to travel around and to visit our families. And we have these freedoms that we've been given, the freedom to earn and not have our money stolen from us by some random stranger. We have police and we have firefighters and we have military. And all of that comes with a price. Like we're driving on roads we didn't pay for. And we're experiencing freedoms. Our lives are the the Tyndale shirt that someone else died to give us, right? So it should cause us to be extremely thankful and grateful, right? Knowing that our freedoms actually cost somebody something. And for many of us, God will call us to make sacrifices for the next generation. And we'll pay some bills that they'll get to enjoy. We'll buy the t-shirts for the next generation. That's how it works. So Isaac understood this whole sacrificial system. Somebody always has to pay. And that's extremely important. So let's continue with the story. Abraham says to his son, this is huge. God will provide. Somehow, son, God is going to take care of this. And he'll provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So they're heading up. They're having this conversation. Here's what happens next. It says, when they came to the place. Everybody say the place. Okay, that's really important. Of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. So he piled up rocks. That's how they built altars. And then he strategically, like any dad would do, you know, I don't know if it was a log cabin or the teepee, but he had the fire laid out. So it was going to light first time, you know, and he gets all that set up on the fire. And then notice what he does next. This is, this is the moment. And he binds his son, Isaac. He binds him, ties his hands and feet and lays him on the altar on top of the wood what a moment. And if you've ever seen movies about this or seen pictures or like a children's Bible, it's usually depicted something like this. Here's an image. Okay. Now this image I don't think is accurate. And I'll explain why. Number one, Abraham is way too young. Number two, Isaac is way too young. This week, as I was studying this, I started reading uh, different commentaries from theologians throughout history. And then looking at the chronology of Abraham's life, because I wanted to know how old was Isaac when he was being sacrificed? That's relevant, and I'll tell you why. The best scholars indicate that Isaac was somewhere between the age of 18 up to 37, was the oldest he could have been. So he's a man, which means Abraham is over 100. Now I'm in my 40s, and my dad's in his 70s. I think I could take him. Like, he would have a hard time binding my hands and putting me on an altar. You know what I'm saying? So you can imagine a 120-year-old Abraham with his white beard and his cane going up the hill. And there's young Isaac, maybe 25 or 30, jacked, carrying all the firewood on his back. And then dad's just going to grab him, bind his hands, and lift him onto the altar. Not a chance. And if correct, if the ages that I'm suggesting are correct, it changes some of the narrative of the story in this way. That you don't just have a willing father who's willing to give his son, but you have a son who's willing to honor his father so much that he's like, Dad, if there's no other way, then yes. And he and he is, is there going, Dad, if, if this is what God requires, I'll do it. Think about that. And that's important because Isaac represents Jesus. And it actually all starts to make a lot of sense. But here's what we'll come back to that. It says this in the next verse. It says, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife. You just saw the image. He's about to slaughter his son. And in the next verse says this Thank goodness, the angel of the Lord. And this is the angel of Yahweh, which I wish we could spend a whole sermon on this because the angel of the Lord appears in all of these incredible stories throughout the Bible. Appears to Joshua, appears to the patriarchs, appears to Moses, appears to all these incredible places. And many scholars believe that the angel of the Lord is actually Jesus in a pre-existent form showing up. So I want you to picture Jesus appearing, saying, whoa, stop. To Moses. Sorry, to Abraham. And he calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. So he's like, whoo, took you long enough. (laughs) Uh, And here's what he says. He says to him. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Here's why. He says, seeing, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. He says, you don't need to kill the boy. You've done enough. I needed to see if you'd really make me the center of your life. I needed to see if you'd really trust me to go through with this. And and you passed the test. So Abraham has done something incredible. And God says, save the boy. Save the boy. And here's what happens next. It says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram. A ram. So this is, you know, I guess a sheep, a goat. I don't know how you define that. Caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, the next verse, and he took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. And this is so important. Instead of his son. So a substitute is provided. Remember? Something had to die. It was supposed to be the son God provides a substitute and the lamb will die in his place to balance the scales. And here's what it says next. Abraham called the name, now this is really important, the name of the place. And in the original language it says Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Jireh, the Lord, Yahweh will provide. That's what it means. So this word Jehovah Jireh means God will provide or God will literally interpret it, God will see to it. He'll take care of it. And Abraham realizes that that See, all of a sudden, remember we said earlier, all the gods in the ancient times demanded a sacrifice? Well, check this out. All the gods demanded a sacrifice, but this God, Yahweh, would be different than every other God because he would provide the sacrifice. Abraham's mind is blown. This God is not behaving like any other God in any other culture, in any other history before us. Now, He goes on to say this, we'll finish here, and then we're going to turn to communion and close things out. It says, As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So, Abraham actually called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. And here's why, I want you to understand some of the history. God was very specific about exactly what place, what mountain, where this sacrifice and transaction was to take place. And you may not know this, but if you study the rest of the scriptures, what you'll discover is the place that Abraham offers his son Isaac later on when the the children of Israel 500 years later would invade and take over the land of Canaan they would drive out the nations that would offer children as sacrifices they would settle the land and they would finally have a king named David and there's this one moment where God is angry at David because David sinned and God's bringing plagues and death on the people and what does David do? He buys a threshing floor from a guy named Ornan, okay? And the scriptures tell us that this threshing floor that David buys, he's going to buy it and build an altar and sacrifice to God, and God's anger and wrath are appeased, and all the people are saved, okay? And the scriptures tell us that that threshing floor of Ornan becomes the site of the temple, becomes the place where they would build the temple to God, where all the sacrifices for sin would be offered. And then at a later time, it's the very same place that Jesus would ascend the hill called Calvary, carrying the wood for the sacrifice upon his back. And when he ascends to the top of the hill, very likely the similar place, at least the same mountain where Abraham offered up Isaac. And there in that place, Jesus would be bound to the altar. He would be nailed to the cross. And there he would give his life. And as you know, Jesus gave his life willingly. He said to his father in the garden, if there's, if there's any other way, but there wasn't. And so he willingly gives up his life for us. And then, um, so, so Jesus actually is, he represents Isaac in this story. But it's more than that. I don't know if you can unmute the keys uh, for us, that'd be really cool. Uh, Jesus is not only Isaac, but he's also, he's also the ramp. Okay, think about this. The, the ram that was provided on that day. You remember what, what was he? Where did they find him? Caught in the bush. He was actually caught in a thorn bush by his horns. So his head is stuck in some thorns. Does that share a picture? Maybe? Crown of thorns are placed on Jesus' head. And he becomes a substitute. So when Jesus actually dies upon the cross, he, he's our substitute. He takes our place for us. So this morning, I don't know, if hopefully you got a, a cup with some, some juice and a cracker. If you want to take that now, we're, gonna, we're going to uh, celebrate and remember communion. And, and when Jesus said uh, for us to do this, he said to do it in what? Remembrance. To not forget the sacrifice that was paid. See, the bottom line is this, all of us have sinned, and God's judgment and vengeance for that sin is coming upon us, except for that God has provided the sacrifice but Jesus has taken our place upon the altar and given his life for us. Now today, as we take it, um, I want you to remember Jesus on the night that he was betrayed and he was with his disciples. He said, this, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. Now, in the ancient times, they didn't just take a perfectly good animal sacrifice it, burn it all up. They actually cooked and ate some of the meat of the animal so it was like we're giving this to god but we're partaking with it so this was going to give us the animal's death gives us life and we offer it to god and there was this kind of communal exchange so when jesus says take my body and eat it they understood all the significance of this right that you ate of the sacrifice and shared in it he said take my body and eat and, and this is my blood poured out and the, when they killed an animal they would slit its throat and drain all the blood this was the appropriate way they had So they understood that these symbols meant in some way that Jesus was going to be their sacrifice and that we partake of it and enter into it with him. And so as we take of the bread and as we take of the cup uh, today, I want us to think of one specific thing, and it's this. Whenever I I think about um, Jesus' death on the cross, the sacrifice, it blows me away. And as I think about it, I'm like, um, how much it must have hurt him To be whipped and beaten and the crown pressed into his head and nailed to the cross. So we understand the agony and suffering was, you know, hard to imagine. But I want us to consider today as we take this, what the father was going through. As he watched his son be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. As his blood was spilled, as he was on the cross crying, God, God, why have you forsaken me? As a dad, I get that in a different way and I'm like what was going on in the heart of the father i don't know who suffered more jesus or the father in this moment but when you see the price how high it was and what was given and what was paid then you you turn around and you go we live we leave this place today and you go to sin you're like ah, it's no big deal it's kind of a big deal because it was cost a lot and it, it changes the way we look at the way we live and the way we treat other people The greater the sacrifice, the greater the cost, and the greater it means to us. So as we take this, I want us to consider the Father who gives His Son to us. And so let's take His body and partake in the sacrifice together. Take the juice, His blood poured out for the remission of our sins and drink it together. I'm going to pray for us as the band comes up and they're going to lead us in a new song it's actually called Jaira and it's by uh, Elevation and another band that wrote it together and it's about Jehovah Jireh, it's his name so if you haven't heard it I want you to just listen to the words and take it in maybe halfway through you can stand and and sing with them but um, just sort of drive home everything we've been talking about so let me pray Father thank you for every person uh, watching our live stream every person in the room As we remember the great sacrifice of Christ laying down his life upon the cross, but also the love of the Father to give his only son. And Lord, I admit that many days I I take your sacrifice for granted. Many days I, I think too small of it. Help us to magnify your name, to magnify the sacrifice you've made, to make you and what you've done for us big in our lives, so that it will change how we live through the week. Thank you for... Dying in our place for our sins, so that we could live unto you and to live with you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Well, that just about wraps it up from us here at Pathway. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure to check us out on our website, pathwaylife.com, and of course our socials, Instagram.com forward slash pathwaylife church, Facebook.com forward slash pathway life. And if you need prayer or care, pathwaylife.com forward slash care. Can't wait to see you guys soon. Be safe out there. We'll see you next time. Bye.